Our text this evening is going to be Psalm 110, if you guys would please turn there in your Bibles. And it should go without saying that because we know that all Scripture is breathed out by God, we know that all Scripture is vital. We read the whole Bible, we study the whole Bible, and we seek to plumb the depths of the whole Bible so that uh, we can dig out all the good, all the knowledge that God has for us, all those gems of truth that God has in his word. However, with that being said, there are certain portions of scripture that are more pivotal in the sense that they're more central in our understanding of what God is doing, of God's great plan of redemption and recreation of all things. And Psalm 110 is one of those central pieces of scripture. This is one of those vital, pivotal texts that really teaches us a lot about what Christ is doing in the world, what God's grand plan of redemption is. So if you would uh, turn to Psalm 110, and we'll read beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will scatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we just pray, Lord, that we would. And Lord, as we are told, this is God-breathed, and it is profitable for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make it profitable this evening, that, God, as we enter into a study of your word, that we would be built up and encouraged, and, Lord, that we would truly understand the gem that this psalm is, and, Lord, that this would be central in our thinking, that we would have a strong foundation of faith to stand on. Help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 110, part of why I say that it's a central pivotal section of scripture is that throughout the New Testament, Jesus, Peter, Paul, the author of the Hebrews, all apply this psalm directly to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so understanding Psalm 110 is vital to understanding the mission of Christ and his work in the world and throughout history. And so as those of you who have been or followed along with my covenant theology class, you know what I always say with these psalms or these texts in the Old Testament where they are so relevant in the New Testament and so often cited and quoted and and we know their fulfillment, there's always this temptation to kind of look at these texts and just jump straight to how it's fulfilled in Christ. But if we're to truly understand the fulfillment in uh, in its fullness, 
then we need to understand it first in its own context. And so when we understand this text in its own context, that's going to unlock for us some of its application in Christ. And when we rightly understand this psalm, it gives us a more solid foundation on which we can, uh, we can build up our faith and boost our certainty and our confidence in what Jesus Christ is going to accomplish. So what's going on here is we have David engaged in a sort of self-conscious prophecy. So oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, you have various events or institutions or people that serve as types. So they point forward to the work of Christ, but oftentimes you don't realize that until the New Testament when we have a New Testament author saying this fulfilled this. So for instance, the exodus from Egypt. The people, when they left Egypt and went out into the wilderness, were told in the New Testament that when Jesus left Egypt and returned to Israel, that was a fulfillment of God saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. But in the moment when they were going through the exodus, it wasn't obvious or clear that that was pointing forward to something else. The same with Israel spending 40 days wandering in the wilderness. We know that that was ultimately pointing forward to Christ I'm sorry, Israel spending 40 years in the wilderness. Christ spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. That was the fulfillment. But in the Old Testament, when Israel's in the wilderness, it's not clear or obvious that there's something greater that's being pointed to. So oftentimes, that's the case. However, there are certain times where the prophecy, the forward-lookingness is more obvious. Now, The people, the faithful in particular in the Old Covenant, could see by the eyes of faith that those events, those institutions, they were looking forward to something else. So we know that Abraham, when he was called into Canaan, we're told in Hebrews that he was looking forward to a heavenly country, to a city made without hands. But as far as the prophets and prophecy is concerned, because that's what we have going on in Psalm 110, Usually the prophets, they understood that they were speaking of something greater, but they weren't sure exactly what that was. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told that Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter tells us the nature of prophecies. The prophets were addressing issues and circumstances in their own time. So there was a direct application but they also understood that they were looking forward to something that was beyond their own understanding. So they knew that there was something better, but they didn't fully grasp it. And that's what's going on here in Psalm 110. David knows that he is proclaiming something, he's writing something that has application in its own context, but also is pointing forward to something better, even though David doesn't know exactly what that is. So we have Jesus' own interpretation of this psalm. In Matthew 22, Jesus said uh, to the Pharisees, 
How is it that David in the spirit calls his son Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So Jesus is arguing that David understood when he wrote this psalm that he was speaking of somebody greater than himself. David was speaking of some authority over him that even he didn't fully understand. And so although David was engaged in written prophecy when he wrote this psalm, David himself was, in a sense, a living prophecy because the psalm does have application in its own context. It was written in the context of a historical kingdom, pointing out truths that were relevant during his own reign, his own reign, and uh, had a forward-looking significance that was rooted in its own context. And so the life of David and the characteristics of David's kingship have just as much of a prophetic significance as the written words of this psalm. And so we start off then in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David's throne in Israel, in literal historical Israel, was an expression of the reign of God. The right hand, that is the seat of authority that is representative of God himself. And so God In the Old Covenant, in the kingdom of Israel, he does bestow this kind of authority on David. In 2 Samuel 7.16, God says to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God, in that text, in that covenant, is saying to David, essentially, sit down at my right hand and reign over my people on my behalf. I'm going to establish your throne. I'm going to make it sure. And so in King David, Israel has a picture of a sort of incarnational rule of God. There is a man who is ruling on God's behalf over God's people, who is to enforce justice according to God's law, who is to defend and to secure the kingdom of Israel. And it's significant as well that David's palace in Jerusalem was in the same location, in the same city as the throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, where the temple would eventually be built. Again, figuratively, you have the right hand of God. So you have God's throne, the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, and then next to it, the king's palace. That's the right hand reigning on God's behalf. This is a manifestation of God's authority in his representative, King David, at his right hand. You also have in Psalm 110 this promise of God conquering the enemies of the king. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God promised David that he would himself subdue his enemies. In 2 Samuel, I don't think we have the text, but God says that he is going to conquer the enemies. He's going to give rest to the kingdom. He is going to uh, destroy the enemies of Israel. And so you have God then saying to David, sit at my right hand in reign, and I will make your enemies your footstool. I will conquer your enemies. 
And so David was commissioned to rule over God's people, to trust in God to conquer the enemy, but also to rule and reign in the midst of a hostile world. So as God was conquering and subduing the enemy, David was still reigning with God's authority in the midst of the enemies. And we have that in Psalm 110, the Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So as David is trusting that God is conquering and subduing the enemy, he is still reigning and ruling and executing God's authority in the midst of them. And so the power exerted by David, that mighty scepter that goes forth from the city of God in Jerusalem, is an expression of God's power and authority, his power to rule over and to subdue the enemy. And so the rule of the king in the Old Covenant was to deliver God's people to their rest. We talked about this in our Bible study. Is to deliver God's people to their rest by conquering and subduing the enemy, by ruling justly according to God's law and by God's authority. That was the role of the king. And in Psalm 110, you have a picture of that, the authority of God, the power against the enemy to defeat the enemy and deliver the people into their rest by giving them rest from their enemies. And so David is writing this down in Psalm 110 while the people of Israel are experiencing it. So under uh, this promise that God made to David and to his offspring, the people did experience rest and consummation in the old covenant kingdom. When Solomon built the temple of God, Israel had peace on all sides. The enemy was subdued. God's people were ruled over by a righteous king according to his law. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56, Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that promised. Not one word has failed of all of his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. And so God's people were experiencing the blessings of the kingship that David is describing here in Psalm 110. This was a golden period in Israel's history when David is writing. It was a period of nearness to God expressed through the Ark of the Covenant being present and then later with Solomon, the temple being constructed. There was a central location of worship for all of God's people to gather together. There was peace from the enemy. There was uh, stability. And this all supplies the people with courage and with confidence and with joy. And uh, it supplies a foundation for faithful obedience, because the king was to lead in righteousness. He was to set an example of obedience to God's law. And so the stability, the power, the uh, the confidence that the king was going to rule and defend, that all supplied a strong foundation for the people to be faithful before God, to walk in obedience, and to trust that God was going to fulfill all of his promises. And so David can sit down and pen this psalm confidently, trusting that God is subduing the enemy and will continue to subdue the enemy. Trusting that God is going to shatter kings, is going to subdue nations, is going to judge the earth in righteousness, and that the people under his rule are all going to be able to read this psalm and say, Amen, let it be so, it's true. 
God was doing something glorious under David and under Solomon. The people were experiencing rest and rejuvenation, peace from the enemies. This was indeed the height of old covenant blessedness, of confidence in God that he truly was building and protecting his kingdom on earth with the enemy powerless to do anything to stop it. This was a period of great confidence, great joy, great worship. True celebration, true boldness was the result of a strong king on the throne ruling and defending God's people. God works through that strong king. But we all know that as glorious as all this was, as truly restful, as truly blessed as the Davidic throne was, we know that all of this still fell short of what God ultimately created man to experience. God created man to be near to him, to have intimate fellowship with him. God created man to have authority over all the earth, to have rest from all enemies, to have dominion. That's what God created us for. And as great as the old covenant throne in Jerusalem was, it didn't accomplish all of that. The rest that God supplied under David and Solomon did not last forever. Enemies rose up because of sin, first David's sin and then Solomon's sin. God allowed enemies to rise up again. He allowed enemies to assault the kingdom, to oppress the people. The people, as far as being gathered together under one king and gathering to one place of worship, united under that head, that didn't last forever. Because of sin, God split the kingdom into a northern and a southern half. Because of sin, he allowed that kingdom, be, that kingdom to be torn in two. The authority of the king was diminished. The centrality of worship was dispersed. All because of sin that had to come in and destroy, ruin what God had built. And that's the thing that you see throughout the entire Old Testament and you see especially in the Davidic throne that a king who was a sinner could not fulfill everything he was required to do. The king was required to lead in righteousness, to defeat the enemy, to establish peace, to secure rest, to do all of that. But because the king was himself a sinner, he couldn't do it all. He couldn't lead in righteousness when he himself was unrighteous. He couldn't bring the people near to God when he could not approach the throne of God. He could not defeat the enemy when he himself was the enemy because he was a sinner. Sin always, every time, proves to be the problem that we can't solve. Sin is what destroys and we can't fully rebuild. Sin is going to hinder the glory and the rest that God created us to experience every single time. Sin gets in the way. Always we fall short of the glory that God made us for because of sin. And so even as something as great and magnificent and glorious as David's throne under the old covenant could not bring the people ultimately to enjoy that rest and that restored fellowship with God. And even within the psalm itself, we see that David, the king, falls short of the ideal. You can read the first three verses of this psalm 
and pretty easily see the application to an idealized throne of David, right? Sit at my right hand. I'm making your enemies your footstool. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people are going to offer themselves freely to you in the day of your power. You can see that as an idealized picture of David's rule. But then you get to verse 4, and there's something that is kind of completely seems to come out of left field, this radically different element where all of a sudden he's talking very clearly about the king, about the throne, about the role of the king. And then he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so this clearly should indicate to everyone that what's being talked about here ultimately is not David and his throne. There's something else going on here. Priests in Israel, as we know, universally were from the tribe of Levi. And we saw with King Saul what happens when a king tries to be a priest. When Saul tried to offer the offering instead of waiting for Samuel, bad things followed. The king was not a priest and he couldn't pretend to be one. Hebrews 7 verses 13 and 14 were told that the one of whom these things were written are are spoken, belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So under the law of Moses, it was the Levites only who could serve at the altar of priests. And so the author of Hebrews makes this very central to his argument that the Levitical priesthood was never meant to last forever. He takes this psalm and this idea of a priest after the order of Melchizedek and says that we can clearly see from this that the idea of Levites only being priests, that was never meant to last forever. That was not God's end goal. God's purpose has always been to raise up a royal priest, a priestly king. That's always been God's purpose. Uh, A little bit earlier in Hebrews 7, verses 3 and 4, We see this, I'm sorry, two and three. To Abraham, uh, to Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the author to Hebrews, and we're not gonna get into all the, nitty-gritty of Melchizedek and all that. But the main idea that the author of Hebrews is going for is that God's purpose has always been for the priest to be the king of peace, the king of righteousness, and the priest of God, all wrapped up in one person. And so the idea of a king from the tribe of Judah and a priest from the tribe of Levi in two separate offices, that was never God's end goal. That was never the the main purpose of God. God's purpose was always to have the same perfect representative head to be both priest and king. The division of the priestly and the kingly offices is a result of the fall. It's not God's initial design. God's purpose was for one man to lead the people in righteousness and to make the people righteous because those are the two the two uh, roles of the king and the priest. The king leads the people in righteousness, but the priest makes the people righteous. He brings the people near to God. 
The king represents God to the people, but the priest brings the people to God. The priest supplies the holy garments so that the people can present themselves to the holy king. And God's purpose was always for both of those offices to be fulfilled by the same person. A priest who, a king who will lead in righteousness, a priest who will make the people righteous. One man who will do both. That has always been God's purpose. And so it's even acknowledged in David, by David in this psalm, that his throne, the throne of David, was never God's end game. It was never God's final plan. The kingship of David was not the final full plan of God. David himself is looking forward to something different to someone greater than himself. Someone who could fulfill both the office of a king and of a priest. And we see this once again, if we go back to the very opening line of the psalm, David is not primarily talking about himself. We can apply this, and we should apply this first in its own context. It says true things about the throne of David, just like we talked about. But David himself is not primarily referring to himself and his own throne. He's talking about someone else. That's the interpretation that Jesus gives. Jesus says, David says, my Lord. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about someone greater than himself. It could not possibly ultimately have reference to David or to a son of David. David would not be calling his son Lord. We see very clearly in the first verse that you have three different characters in this psalm. You have the Lord, Yahweh, says to my, that's David, Lord, that's a third person. So you have Yahweh, David, and David's Lord. Three different people being spoken of in this psalm. It could not possibly be referring ultimately to David or ultimately to David's son because David calls him Lord. The interpretation that Jesus gives, the argument that Jesus makes is that he was the one whom Jesus was referring to, that Jesus is both the son of David and the Lord of David. We're told that Jesus is the root and descendant of Jesse, that David, that Jesus is the creator and the offspring of David according to the flesh. Romans 1 Paul writes concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Jesus only who could be spoken of in this psalm, who is the Lord who is both descended from David and who precedes David, who created David and rose up from David's offspring. That's who is being spoken of ultimately in this psalm. Jesus is the Lord of Psalm 110. And so all of the legitimate application that we make to David's literal, physical, historical throne in Jerusalem, we find its fullest realization, its fuller meaning in the throne of Jesus Christ. 
And so when we understand this, with all that background that we have of the historical throne of David, we can understand that what's going on, what's being described for us in Psalm 110, we have a peek behind the curtain of a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Psalm 110.1 is a divine decree, a royal command from God the Father commissioning his only begotten Son to inherit the throne, inherit the seat of authority at his right hand as king and lord over all creation. This is God the Father saying to his son, sit at my right hand and let me subdue your enemies. And so it's the son's obedience to the father when he comes and conquers the enemy. The commission is for every enemy to be subdued through the son. And so Christ executes this rule and this reign as the warrior king over all creation, assured by the Father that he will succeed in this. So the Son is being told by the Father, rule in the midst of your enemies, sit at my right hand as the Lord over all creation, conquer every enemy, but you can do so with confidence because I'm the one who's going to put them under your feet. I'm the one who's going to subdue them. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19. We see this fulfilled in Christ, who is the Lord and the King over creation that is described in this psalm. The Father is commanding him to reign over creation and subdue the enemy, and the Son obeys this command. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have Jesus Christ A picture there of him coming as the conquering king, ruling perfectly, the king over all other kings, the Lord over all other lords. See, that didn't happen in David's day. David's enemies rose up. David's enemies struck again. David's enemies ended up conquering his kingdom, but that's not so with Christ. Because Christ is the perfect fulfillment of this psalm. Because he is the Lord who is being spoken of here, we know for certain that he is going to complete his mission. He is going to rule until all his enemies are put under his feet. He is going to come on that white horse and judge the nations with a rod of iron. And he attained this position, this seat of authority, through becoming incarnate, taking on human flesh, by living a sinless life and dying in the place of his people, substituting himself for them, and being resurrected from the dead and ascending to the throne. And this is exactly the way that the apostle Peter interprets this psalm. Turn to Acts chapter 2.
Acts 2, this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. After the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the apostles, Peter stands up in a huge crowd during the time after Passover on the day of Pentecost, this feast day. Acts 2, beginning in verse 29, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What's Peter saying there? He is saying that Jesus Christ took on flesh, died on the cross, was raised from the dead. We are witnesses of that. And then in verse 33, he says, therefore, because of all that, because he lived sinlessly, died and was raised, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is sitting down and reigning over his enemies as they are being subdued. That's why we can look back at the actual historical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because we know that for sure, We know that Jesus is the king. He is the Lord whom this psalm is talking about. He is the king who's going to come, like in Revelation 19, conquering every enemy of his. The Jews who heard Peter on that day understood that exactly. And that's why the next thing out of their mouths was, what can we do to be saved? They knew that seal, that the resurrection prove that Jesus is the king who's going to conquer his enemies. And so they didn't want to be his enemies. They said, how can we be saved? And the other way that Jesus fulfills Psalm 110 tells us exactly how we can be saved. Because Jesus is not just the king, he is the priestly king. He's not just like David, who was reigning and seeking to subdue the enemies, but he's also that priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's not only the representative of God and the one who executes God's law and his wrath and justice, but he is also the mediator between holy God and sinful man. He doesn't just lead the people in righteousness, but he makes them righteous. He doesn't just conquer the enemy, but he makes the enemies of God the disciples of God through his blood. He requires a holy garment for people to come into his presence And as the priest, by his blood, he supplies that holy garment, that covering that is necessary to come into the presence of God, to draw near to the throne. And because of his resurrection, just like it says in the psalm, he is priest forever. His priesthood continues permanently. There will never be another mediator. There will never be another way. And Christ, as the way, will never fail to bring all of his people who have trusted in him into his glory. He will deliver every single one of us who trust in him. So the kingship of Christ 
For we who are believing, for we who know, who have subdued to him as Lord and have trusted in him as Savior, it is an unbelievable mercy to have such a glorious and a righteous king. But for those who are his enemies, the kingship, the rule of Christ is an unbearable terror. See, because of the reality of Christ's resurrection, we can be confident that he does rule in the midst of his enemies. He's ruling today, even though there's enemies all around, Christ is ruling. And we know that he will conquer the enemy, that no enemy will truly pose a threat to his throne, that no one will be able to dethrone the Lord Jesus Christ, no one will be able to unseat him. And we are confident that because of his eternal priesthood, if we trust in him, we are eternally secure. He brings us before his father. But with all of that, with the resurrection, the reign of Christ, the priesthood of Christ, it comes the sobering reality that those who remain enemies of Christ, those who refuse to bow the knee to him as Lord and King, well, Paul applies the principles of Psalm 110 to them as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That means that in the end, every enemy of Christ will be brought to nothing either by the grace of his gospel or by the wrath of his judgment. Kings and nations, just like it says in the psalm, will be shattered. The psalm, there's that graphic ending of, of him filling, uh, filling with corpses and scattering chiefs over the wide earth. That's the, the sobering Hard reality for those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ, those who refuse to be his disciples, he will judge. He will shatter them and destroy them and conquer them in that way. This gives us confidence that no enemy of Christ, even though there are real enemies of Christ who are surrounding us today as we live and breathe, there are enemies of Christ in the world. The reality of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to the throne should give us great confidence that none of those enemies will last. None of them will be victorious. None of them will defeat Christ. And so, yes, we fight boldly and courageously for the kingdom of Christ and for his glory because we know how it all ends. We know that it ends with Christ bringing the heavenly Jerusalem down, consummating his reign in glory for all eternity. But also this should remind us, when we think of the reality of judgment and we think of that imagery of Christ coming as king with the sword that, uh, that destroys and with the rod of iron that shatters kings and destroys nations, it should be a reminder to us that ultimately the enemies of Christ are not philosophies or ideologies. Because we can think that. We can look out in the world and see all of these really horrible, dangerous, wicked ideas that are out there and these sinful, perverse philosophies. And we can think to ourselves that those are the true enemies of Christ. And while those are things that will be conquered and things that we must oppose, ultimately the enemy 
is the person who believes those things, the person who believes those ideologies, sinners like all of us once were, who were sold out to a sinful worldview that was in opposition to Christ. Ultimately, it's real, true people, image bearers of God, who are the enemies of Christ. And that should make us all the more motivated to proclaim the grace available through the priesthood of Christ, that the kingship, the rule and reign of Christ is a terrifying reality for his enemies because he's going to conquer them. But the priesthood of Christ, the fact that Jesus shed his own blood to make us holy so that we could come into his presence, not as enemies, but as saints, as sons and daughters, as heirs, That's the gracious gospel that we need to proclaim. His substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. His mediating priesthood that he represents us now before God. We should have great urgency to proclaim that because we know what waits for those who don't bow the knee to Christ. For those who are not made righteous. For those who don't have that holy garment on that last day. Just like the people who were brought into the wedding feast. But then those who didn't have a wedding garment were cast into the outer darkness. Judgment is going to come not just against ideologies and philosophies. But against people. Against our neighbors who need the gospel of Christ, who need to know that Jesus is Lord and that if we're going to receive him as Lord, we need to be made holy. Christ will be exalted. He will. And he will be exalted by defeating every enemy. And we as his people, we are privileged in participating in this by opposing wickedness everywhere we can, by proclaiming the only hope of salvation in the cross of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we do this with confidence and with full assurance that he will be victorious, that his will will be done, his kingdom will come. He will reign forever and ever. And so we should have courage. We should have boldness and zeal. And we should be highly motivated to proclaim this gracious gospel. It is the only hope of salvation for individuals and for nations.